It's the second week in a series called Exodus, uh, God Calls. Uh, and as we were praying this morning, we were just a bit worried uh, in our prayers that, that you'll think this is some kind of a history lesson, that like we're going to tell you about the church and where it came from and what went on uh, thousands of years ago, and you'll just sit there and think that's very interesting. That is absolutely not the intention of the morning. Uh, the Bible speaks right through to today. We prayed as well this morning, and it was even sung out. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same God of this Bible as we're living with now. It's the same God of the Old Testament as the New Testament. He hasn't changed. Uh, and you'll see throughout this series echoes of just his heart that he's a saving God, that he is a, a covenanting God that makes relationship with us. And he's an indwelling God that, that is with us. And that's true throughout scripture, throughout history and right in our current time. Um, we think it's an important series. I think it's an important series as I've looked at it more and more. Uh, I can't say I find it easy reading Exodus because there's so much history to grapple with. Um, you have to know Genesis to understand what's going on in Exodus. So it takes a bit of work um, to kind of get it all clear in your head. But, but we feel this is really poignant in this time. And some of the issues that are going on in the church, in this country, and in us as individuals. You know, if I said to you, you're right, you'll do the standard English thing and go, all right. You know, that's a standard response. Uh, I, I go around the world and, 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 and the different ways people introduce themselves is quite interesting. You know, you ask a Dutch person, how are they? And they go, rubbish. And then they tell you, ask an English person, we're always fine, yeah? But you ask a Dutch person, don't you? Is that true, Joost? You know, yeah, but it's, yeah, just out they come with it. You're, like, you're supposed to say fine and not talk about it. I mean, what are you doing, Dutch people? Um, but it's very refreshing because if they say they're fine, they are genuinely fine, uh, which is very encouraging to know. Um, but yeah, so, so, so one of the issues, I think we say we're fine and we're not. We try and put a brave face, stiff upper lip, very British thing to do, pretend we're okay when we're not. Uh, and I think there's some challenges in the church at the moment uh, that we need to face up to in our walk of faith uh, in this nation and as individuals we need to face up to. The idea and the issue is, uh, I think, that God is somehow drifted away from us. That there's times when he's been very present amongst us and there's times when he just doesn't seem to be around very much where the church at the moment in the UK is struggling because God's not really around very much and seems to have kind of left us alone a bit. And here we are kind of just ticking over. That can be very true of our personal walks as well. You know, that, that somehow God kind of comes in and comes out of our lives and there's moments of jubilee and celebration. There's moments of he's just not around anymore and therefore I'm, I'm feeling like he's just not interested. And we can react and we could say, because we're so British, aren't we? No, no, it's not true. I absolutely believe that God is with me. But, but really we're putting a brave face on it. Really, we sometimes have moments of struggle. You may be going through it now. You may have recalled this from the past, or it may be something you're going to face. But I just think Exodus wants to speak to us. God wants to speak to us through Exodus about those times in your life. And I think there's an unusually large amount of people that would say, okay, being very Dutch right now, that's kind of where I am. You know, that's where I am, really. If you ask me if I'm fine, I'd go, not really. In this weird kind of, yeah, this kind of space where it feels like, well, he's very distant. Uh, it's interesting when Marion said about how the hands of God can feel on you, the potter's hands, and you're thinking, for some people, they feel cold. They feel cold. They feel cold hands on me. They're not warm. They're not, I'm not feeling that. I'm feeling like cold hands of God. Like, that's not very comforting. That's not very nice to feel that upon me. In 1991, um, around that time, I'm awful with dates, I got married in 1991. Um, well, in 1991, actually, I came to faith. In 1992, I actually got married. See, I told you I was rubbish with dates. Um, to a Christian. Just so you know, that's not Jane. So you know how this story is going to go. 
Um, I moved out of my home, moved in with my brother who had just come to faith. I had just come to faith. My uh, wife-to-be at that point when we were moving uh, out and in together was going to be um, is a Christian. And, and my brother's girlfriend, who wasn't a Christian, became a Christian too. So we're in this house in Harrow and we're all Christians and we're all kind of full of it. And it was just a, such a time of zeal and we would worship in the front room on instruments because my brother could sing really well and I could play a few instruments and we would worship just randomly in our front room. And there was times this great moment and we were going to church and we were loving it because we were just like feasting on all this new stuff and this wonderful relationship that we had, uh, that, that we had found when Jesus came into our lives. Um, we felt like we just landed in the middle of God's favour. There's very little going wrong in terms of our walk. Then comes issue number one. Six months maybe uh, later to a year, my mum sits us down and says, I have cancer. And, I, I'm, and they tell me there's no chance. So just to let you know. And my mum was the lady in the church who had got us into the church. She was instrumental in us coming to faith. And she, six months later, she dies. I was actually in Australia at the time when she was taking critical They flew me back from Australia in the middle of the night. I landed, got to the hospital. She could hardly speak. Five hours left, and that was it. She was gone. Um, I moved away to Manchester with my wife. She ran off with a guy from work, left me, never came back. My brother and his wife started going through struggles. They had two children, separated divorced. Even roll on a few years, my dad was quite unwell. He had colitis, which is an unpleasant thing to say the least. And uh, ate some dodgy chicken from a butcher. Died that night. Where was God's? Did I feel blessed early on? Yep, in that mo those moments, and they're not all happening at once, they're spread apart, but in those moments am I saying, you know, just feel his presence, feel his warm hands upon me. There was, there was real times of struggle because I prayed those things away. Did he just do that to get me in the Jesus Club and then throw me under the bus uh, once I was in? Is that what was going on? Because I can't pretend to you that didn't go through my mind occasionally. Uh, all that stuff at the beginning was kind of like a bit of a, woo, have a party, come and join us. And everyone says yes to the party. And then you get involved and then something happens. You're thinking, did he just hoodwink me into this? Because now things are tough. Today's message is for anyone who's faced times of struggle and wondered where God is. But it's also for the church, which has a similar story. Maybe there's something going on in this nation when you think, yeah, there's similar stuff there. And for those of us that have a heart for the nations, Brian and Marion are always leading us in prayers for the nations and the persecuted church. There's some difficult stuff going on there too, yeah? There will be times of just like amazing celebration as they find their faith and then there's difficulty and persecution and feels like, what's going on? China went, you know, had years of oppression and, and illegalism and, legal, and then it has a breakthrough of the church grows and then it's now being pushed back down again. Uh, and that won't be an unfamiliar story in Exodus. I've called this preach... Um, Promises made, promises kept. And in case you think that's me taking the mick out of Trump, promises made, promises kept, one of his big ones, yeah? He didn't come up with that, it's not his. It's actually not even, it's from years and years ago. It was by some candidate said it and they've been stole for years um, along the line. 
But I want to talk about this promises made and promises kept because um, as John Durham puts it in his book about Exodus, he says that the Exodus is a tension between God's promises and the threats that oppose it. Between God's promises and the reality we sometimes find ourselves in. And I think uh, someone sent me a, a WhatsApp at the beginning of the year and said, you're gonna, you need to know this and look at this scripture because you're going to preach some tough messages this year. This might be one of those when we're not going to sit there going, he's so funny. Because uh, it can be quite funny, can't I, darling? Yes, thank you. Yeah, my daughter gave that look. Um, but actually, this is about saying, no, this is preparing us for some times of struggle, whether we're in them or we'll face them. Um, but it's a message of hope. I can't, I can't like, spoiler alert, it's, you know, it's a message of hope ultimately. But we've got to get through quite some bits of Exodus sometimes to, to get to that. Um, so let me just set the scene briefly so we know what we're talking about uh, in Scripture. Some of us are very familiar with where we are in the Bible. Some of us had no clue where we are in the story, so let's not assume too much. God's chosen people, the Israelites, are told in Genesis 46 to go into Egypt. God will take them in and uh, he will bring them out. He says, I'll, I'll come in with you and I'll bring you out. Um, so that sounds pretty cool. I mean, you would say, okay, if God's spoken clearly, we'll do that. Um, uh, in they go, 400 plus years uh, later, uh, they're still there. Uh, and uh, even though it started well, in fact, we'll talk a little bit uh, in a while about how well it started, um, things start to turn pretty sour uh, towards the end of this story as you get into this 400 years thing. So I'm going to read from Exodus 1. It's a big chunk of scripture. Whoops, sorry. Uh, it's going to be 8 to 22. You're probably quite small up there. Bible would help. Um, let me read it to you. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I'll talk about him in a minute. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us dwell, deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread about abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made them their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the fields. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other named Pua. When you, when you serve a midwife... Uh, to the he serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the burstal. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The, the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. Essentially, they, that was not probably true. That was a, that was a get out of it. Um, God dealt with them. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That was not an act of mercy, letting the daughters live. That was an act of enslaving. So that's a rough, rough, 
I mean, I don't know about you, but this is a difficult moment. I want to bring out a few points here. Um, what this means to us today as Christians in this nation and to consider it too on a personal level as God uses tension often to build strength. The question I want you to answer, and, and you don't have to shout this out loud, but consider it. Do you want to grow stronger in your faith? Do you want to grow stronger in your faith? Because if the answer is yes, and I know the answer for me is yes, then like many things, to grow stronger in anything requires some level of resistance. I know if you uh, do uh, exercise, I've, I've been uh, doing various exercises over recent years. I run. Did you know that, Jess? No, no I didn't mention it. No. <laughs> she says, you always say, I did a run. But, uh, but uh, sometimes I can't find a running machine if I'm traveling and I end up on a, on a bike, you know, an exercise bike. You put that thing on zero tension, the thing just flies around like, and you can sit on there for, and nothing's happening. And you're not going to do much. You might, you know, do something over time, a little bit of toning, but it's only as you turn up the resistance do we grow the muscle. So do you want to grow stronger in your faith? Then God's going to allow a bit of tension sometimes. So I want to be three points out. I'll be fairly, fairly brief in the middle one because I want to get to the, to the application for us and how we respond. The three points I want to make are because... Uh, we're all three-point preachers around here, uh, is this. Whoops. Uh, a people out of place, a people in the valley, and a people in the promise. Just before I dive in, I don't want to make too many assumptions on us knowing about phrases we use. I, I remember the other day, you know, the first time I was at church, there was a lot of explaining like what things meant and words meant, and, and we don't do that as much anymore, which is dangerous because there's some people new to the faith around us, and we say Israelites thinking, well, that's just obvious who they are, and sometimes these things aren't even that obvious. Um, so the Israelites are going to get a lot of mentions in, in Exodus, and I just want to make sure we know who they are. They are the descendants of Jacob, um, Initially, at this moment, when they, when they move over into Egypt, there's about 70 of them. Um, Jacob is the son of Isaac, Isaac, who was the only son of Abraham. Abraham was a very old man with an infertile wife. They're in their 80s and 70s. Uh, she conceives a child because God promised it and a whole lot more. We'll get to that a little bit later. So you have Abraham's son called Isaac, son called Jacob. And then Jacob has a moment when he wrestles with a man who's the, the, the things he's wrestling with God, and God gives him a new name, and his name is Israel. So he gives him a name, Israel. So now the people of Jacob are now the people of Israel, because that's who they're under. So now we are Israelites, okay? And now we call them Israeli. And we also use the term Jew from the, to do with Judah and how they split into two tribes and came back together again. So there's multiple phrases. There's, there's Jewish, there's Israelite, and there's Hebrew as well. Oh, Hebrew too. Yes, Hebrew. They were called that before uh, Israel got his name. That's when they're under Abraham sort of thing. So you've got three names. You think, okay, it's confusing, but just know that. Hebrews, Israelites, and Jews, you're talking about the same essential group of people. Now, you may use it to describe different things about their faith and where they are. Um, and if you think that's confusing, you think that's just ridiculous. Why would you write a Bible like that to make it so confusing? Well, I don't know about you, but have you ever sat down in front of one of those forms and it says nationality and you're thinking English, British, UK, Anglo-Saxon? Don't quite know what to write in here sometimes, yeah? So it's not that confusing sometimes when these things change over time. And maybe in a few months' time we won't even be able to call ourselves European. Not going there, enough said, moving on. Okay, all right. Uh, now, people out of place. So people out of place. Um, don't know about you, if you've ever felt out of place. I, I feel out of place in 
you might be surprised. The posher the event, the more out of place I, f I feel. I feel completely ridiculous in these kind of, occasions you get invited to these, one of the things you have to wear a DJ and you sit down and there's more cutlery than you know what to do with. And you're just thinking, I don't know what to do. And there's, there's five glasses, you know, just give me red wine and water. What's the other three for? Um, but all that kind of stuff. But it gets even harder when you're abroad because when you're abroad, there are customs and traditions and things that offend people. You have to know all that stuff too. And Marion's an expert on this stuff. I know when, when we went to Egypt, uh, the Dan Brown and the family wrote a thing, these things you should probably, you'll find doing, these things please try not to do. Um, and, and not because they're just ridiculous, it's because these things are, they mean different things. The soles of your feet being seen mean things to people. So there's the way you shake hands and don't shake a hand until that hand is presented to you. It's all respecting a culture, but the more it happens, the more out of place you kind of feel. And here in Exodus, that's going on too, because you've got a people here who are essentially increasingly becoming out of place. Um, and notice because there were 70 of them and now there's a lot. There's much debate about how many. Some say they got to 2 million by the time we're talking here um, because you count the men and then they didn't count the women and the children, 600,000, probably 2 million. There's some debate, but let me know. Let me say, it's a lot, enough to be noticed and cause some attention, more than 70 people in a nation. Um, so um, Joseph, so you've got, remember, Abraham, Isaac, um, Jacob and now Joseph, his son, his, he's become prime minister of Egypt. So they had a season when they were in favour, when they were fine and they were liked and they were kind of settled in. And, and in fact, Joseph was seen as a good prime minister um, under Pharaoh. So near, a very high job. And when they come in, Pharaoh says, give them the best of the land. I mean, he says, bring, bring in your family and bring them into the best of the land, a place called Goshen, and says, you can have that and it's good land and you can, you can tend my sheep. So he even gives them work. So they're welcomed in. Um, but that's 400 years ago. Now, 400 years later, a new king comes in, a new government, and they look upon them with suspicion. There's a lot of you, and we don't like what you're about, and we don't like what you could become. Think about the church in this nation, yeah? There's a lot of you, and we don't like what you could become and what you stand for, because we're over here and you're over there, so we're going to try and suppress you. Bring them under control. The people out of place with different ways, getting too big, and Pharaoh hatches a plan to deal with that problem. Plan A, bring them into line. Treat them like second-rate citizens. Mock them, shame them, grind them down. The wording used here is often like beaten low or made low. In other words, get them under control, keep them in check. In some ways, knock them and their God into touch. So it says there, doesn't it? So the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter and with hard service in mortar and bricks and all kinds of work in the field. And they were, well, and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. I think English probably really underplays what that was like. You know, ruthlessly sounds like, oh, a bit tough. I don't think it was that straightforward. But it says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The story of China is a story of that. It's the illegal church, and it's just kept growing. The more you suppress the people of God, the more they seem to grow. Plan A fails. It fails. It doesn't work. They grow. So they, they, he hatches plan B, as you, as you would have noticed in that story. Plan B says, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. Without sons, there's not really an army there. 
a nation can fade out without sons. And then there's just two amazing women that get their names mentioned in history. There's multiple amazing women in the story of Exodus, but these two get called out. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's one book I'd love to have seen my name in, it would have been the Bible, okay? Um, and, and they get mentioned here. Now, again, are they just the only two? Are they senior members of the midwife team who have been told, take this instruction to yours? Doesn't really matter. Whatever it matters is they didn't do it. Uh, so the plan fails. So Shifra and Pua, they decide that they fear God more than Pharaoh. There's a whole story in there about is it right or wrong to do because uh, they're essentially deceiving him. But they fear God more than uh, Pharaoh. So incredible courage. I mean, incredible courage. Just think of the culture they're sitting in. It's one that says, we basically not kill people here. And you have refused a command by Pharaoh. And yet we don't see the detail. It says God blessed them. So something kept them and sustained them. And they weren't um, taken out. So here comes plan C. Plan C, the cruelest of Pharaoh's plans. Because it didn't work when he instructed people. So now it's like everyone and anyone, uh, anyone in Egypt, you can throw um, any, any son of a Hebrew you see into the Nile. There's a lot of stuff about the Nile. You'll hear uh, that story that they believe the, there was a god of the Nile. So there's a lot more to just throwing them in water. They believe that that was a god. And so um, can't do much here because I'll just race ahead of the whole story of Exodus and I could ruin it in one go. But all I'll say to you is that that plan, that plan leads to Moses. Because without that plan, Moses would not be found where he was found, i.e. Pharaoh's daughter finds him because they put him in the Nile, so his mother is saying, I'm doing roughly what you said, but in a little basket, and you, you know a bit of the story, I'm sure, what happens. I don't want to go there because it just, spoiler alerts, too much of it. But the point is the plans that God is allowing to happen lead to something of <coughs> massive significance for those people in Moses. So um, we're going to stay in Scripture this is a low point in their history, though. You can imagine what's going on here. This is starting to lead them into valleys of despair. And I want to use that term valley a bit today. Um, Brian mentioned it as well. We were praying about it, too. Um, it's a metaphor in many ways. Uh, you can use it as oppression. But uh, you know, being in a valley, being in a, a low point, um, when we go through darkness, we can describe it as like, I'm in the valley. I'm in a valley. Um, and we sometimes, in the valley, depending on how deep it feels, can wonder if we can just keep going at all. And valleys in scriptures are often signs of uh, struggles as well. They're associated with struggles. They're, they're physical places. So these aren't made up, but they are representative of a different thing. So um, just to pick out five for you, Sidim, uh, the valley of sin, Kidron, the valley of suffering, Anchor, the valley of punishment, Elah, the valley of battle against our foes, and Gehenna, uh, the valley of death. Um, Gehenna was a, was a dump, the rubbish tip sometimes said to be on fire. So you've got, used often to describe hell, yeah? A rubbish tip on fire. But Gehenna. And the, the, the Israelites in Exodus, they are in somewhere in Kidron and Gehenna. They're suffering and they have the valley of death around them as well. So everything seemed to be going well in those heady days early on when they're getting into Goshen and they're favoured by Pharaoh. And now they're struggling. You may well think, oh, but they are the Israelites. They would be a special people full of a special kind of faith. Trust me, when you get through Exodus, you're going to see that they, they really do not perform particularly well under pressure uh, and in the valleys. They struggle. They want to go back to their old life at times. How much of us in our walk of faith do that? It's not going right, and they, you start to sort of crave the things of your old life. That will happen to them too. So it's not like they just 
walk through it with no problems because they feel challenged and, and the years to come and the story of Exodus will keep bringing that out. Alec Moiter in his uh, book, A Message of Exodus, puts it like this, despite what God said in Genesis about going to Egypt, they obey that command. He says, go into Egypt and I will bring you out. Well, they go in and they're in the middle of it and it feels like, as he said, heaven above was a sign as earth around was threatening. And before we allow the thought to arise that this happened long ago, we need to ask why Paul in the New Testament thought it necessary to teach we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Or why Peter addressed the church as God's elect strangers in the world. Just pause there for a second. Again, think about it. As we grow to be strangers in our workplace, there can be times when you suddenly become ostracized in schools as you will be a young Christian, mocked by your mates, cut out because you're the, I was called a God botherer at work, yeah? I don't know what that really means. I'm not bothering God. I must be bothering you. But, but they called me that. You're a God bother. You know, there goes the God bother. And they didn't realize I walked out of a bar once. I had loads of friends because I played you know, sports and did things at school. Walked back in the bar. And as I walked in, they went, someone went, oh, the God bother has gone. And I was literally standing behind and went, cheers, guys. They're like, oh, sorry, didn't mean anything. But I knew they did. Experience without explanation, adversity without purpose, hostility without protection. That is how life will always appear for earthly people of God. It may seem silent. It may seem like sometimes you're in a valley, but we have to remember the promises of God. These were a people of the promise, and they are living in the middle of the promise. They're not at the end of the promise. What we're seeing here is them in the middle of it. God's promise to Abraham was this. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And, I will, and, and, in, all, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In Genesis later he says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Now, we're not doing Exodus, we're not doing Genesis, we're doing Exodus, by the way, but we have to realize he's 80-ish, we think. His wife is 70 when he hears this. She is infertile, and he says, you're going to have an offspring more numerous than the stars in heaven and the sand on the beach. He's like, you've got to be kidding. Come on. Come on. You can't do that. No one can do that. That's just ridiculous. Of all the people to choose, why would you choose me? Why don't you choose some young person with a wife who's already given birth to 20 and say, they'll create the nations because the multiplication factor is obvious. God's not. No, I choose you in all your weakness and all your failures, and I make a promise over you just to prove I am God. I, and he says later to Isaac, he even reminds Isaac of the story. So we're going down through the generations again of Abraham. As I swore to Abraham, your father, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give you offspring in all these lands. And your offspring, and in your offspring, all the nations of earth shall be blessed. So where we're right now is we're in the middle of the promise being fulfilled. Exodus is being fulfilled because they have multiplied too many, maybe two million, who knows, but many from no none then one to millions in a short space of time. 
So the promise to, to do that has started to happen. But we're only halfway through the promise. We're in the middle of it, and in the middle of that promise, I've given you the multiplication, and, I'm gonna, and it says, and I will bring you out again. Well, that hasn't happened yet. I'm sure when they heard that, they thought, oh, give me, I will give it two years. I'll give God about two years. We'll go in, kind of get familiar, feel like a bit of a holiday, frankly, and then we'll kind of come back out again. Not 400. Not 400. Well, 400. Imagine in the 400 years, how many times they would have thought, this is rubbish. This is nonsense. What he said that Abraham told us, God said, rubbish. Because here we are, hundreds of years later, and we haven't come out. And not only have we not come out as we get towards it, we're starting to be oppressed. It's starting to feel like so desperate. In the middle of the promise, there can be doubt. But I said promises made, promises kept. What does God promise over you and me? Why has he promised over me in those times when I was low? And not everything in my life has been because of some dramatic event. There are seasons where I just feel flat as a pancake. You can't, you're a pastor. What nonsense are you thinking? Of course, there are seasons when I feel like, where am I at with God right now? Where is he right now? What's going on in my life? Why don't I have the sparks and the moments I used to have of those things years and years ago? And then there's seasons when it's back again. We're having, oh, I should share, I should share something. We're having a ridiculous time in Thursday evening practices at the moment. Are we not? Ludicrous. Lost in worship. Going on for ages. One song can last like 15 minutes. And then the next morning, I can wake up feeling flat as a pancake again. And I have to kind of think, what's going, what? God's, and I feel God saying to me in, in preparing for this series, you're not a child anymore, Andy. Constant candy is not the way I'm going to do it. Constant gift giving, constant answering every request. If, we've seen, if you've seen Bruce Almighty, the film, is that the one when he grants every single prayer of every person? by? That's not how God, that's childish thinking. Grow up, Andy, a little bit. Come on, I'm not going to lift you up every single moment. There's times when you just have to trust me and walk on your own two feet. But I'm right here. I've not gone anywhere. I'm right here. I'm just going, go on then, walk. Like a, like a father with a child, like sending us pictures the other day of, of Violet starting to try and walk. And of course, Hannah doesn't go, good luck, Violet. Are you walking yet? She's like, they're going, go on, go on, go on, go on. Because she wants her to grow. John wants her to grow. We all want our children to grow and strong legs and stand on your own two feet. But I'm not going anywhere, especially when you're trying things out. This is where I'm most observant of you. This is where I'm most looking at because I'm going, this, this is risky. This is you stepping out alone. And I'm right, right here. Go on, go on. And my daughter is now going to turn, against my orders, by the way, 20. How dare you turn 20? She was supposed to stay eight forever. But without making a very, I'm very proud of her. And I know a lot of that was down to, go on, Jess. Go on, Jess. Go on, Jess. Go on, Jess. That kind of behavior. That's what God does over us sometimes. Go on, Yost. Go on, Yost. Go on, Yost. Go on, Yost. You've done it. And I'm here watching now. So proud of your growth. He does not forsake us. He will not forsake you. I feel that some of us have gone, oh, I'm, better that. I'm not so sure. He will not forsake us. That is his promise over us. God has saved us, not through Moses, but through Jesus. There have been and there will be heady days. God has promised you eternal life free from pain. That is a promise. 
That is a promise. You are going to have eternal life with him, free from pain, no more suffering. But we're in the middle of it. We're living in the middle of it. It's the now and the not yet. So sometimes it's fresh. It's there. But here feels quite different. Yeah, but it's there. And if you don't know it's there and you want it, then please ask and we'll, we'll introduce you to Jesus and he can give it to you. And you can say, well, now I know it's there. And therefore I have hope because that hope sometimes has to sustain me because this feels very uncertain, very wobbly on my feet. I believe God wants to use Exodus to toughen our resolve because we need it. We do need it. We need it personally to run the race set before us. A race that needs perseverance. We need, as a church, to run the race before us. A, ra- a race of perseverance. Uh, Marion mentioned to us when we did the thing, when and Aaron did his grey hair and said, like, let's do 20 years in the future, but the church is like, there's a, there's a sense in 20 years in the future, it's going to be pretty tough to be a church. It's not going to be easy, I don't believe. The, the indicators, at least at the moment, are saying, we're going to start to probably curtail the things you can say. Maybe even could tell the things that you could, where places you can meet. But certainly, if you get too mouthy, if you get too outspoken about there's one true God, one true God, how dare you? That offends me, even though I don't believe in God. I'm offended by your statement, even though I don't believe in God at all. I don't want you to say there's one because that's not fair on everyone else. That sort of stuff can come. I believe God wants to use Exodus to toughen our resolve personally as well. I believe he wants to use Exodus to show us that he is never absent. He is never absent. Not in the church, not in your personal life. When we face trials, he is literally often going, I need to let this happen. Go on. Go on. Two scriptures that came to mind. One that I often find so easy to read and then so hard to digest. James 1, 3 to 4. For you know, do I, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and and let steadfastness have its effect, i.e. let hanging in there work itself through. Because if you let it work itself through, you will become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then there's also the classic, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, some translate that into just the darkest of valleys, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You are with me. You are with me in the darkest moments. I know there's going to be some testimonies this year of people who will come up and say, you will not believe how dark it got, but he was with me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the promise. Ultimately, I will dwell in the promise in the house of the Lord forever. (coughs) The same for church sometimes. Feels like we're losing ground. It's a mystery when it says, yet God works all things together for the good for those who love him. He said he would build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He works all things together for the good. I'm not going to sound like, I don't want to sound like some, you know, so rampant sort of evangelistic kind of politician here um, because you can go into that kind of, you know, God's going to bless us. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. Yes, yes, of course he will. Ultimately, he's going to bless us. And if I said, who wants to be blessed? I did this before. Said, oh, yeah, me, of course. I believe that God, we will see 
times in our lives, in our lives, when there will be moments of fantastic breakthrough, but there will be times of real tough hardship. And God's wisdom is to say, let me just let some go right now so you can get a bit stronger, ready for the next thing. But always he will work it together for the good of us personally and as a nation and as a church. I found a song as I was prepping, um, I'm pretty much done here, um, by a guy, I don't know the guy, but the, I was looking up um, another song and I found this song and I read the words and, and it's a very good song. It's a guy called Torren Wells. Um, I liked it because when I read it, it's like, it's, for my generation, that feels quite poetic. For others, it may feel, feel like nothing of the sort. Um, but these are the words. And I might send a link of it out to... Um, is that stuck? I'll read it, but if you can see if you can move that on for me. It's, it, I did put the words in, I thought. Maybe I didn't. I'll read it out to you anyway. Listen carefully. I walked among the shadows. You wiped my tears away. And I felt the pain of heartbreak and I've seen the brighter day. And I've prayed the prayers to heaven from my lowest place. And I have held the blessings, God, you give and you take away. No matter what I have, your grace is enough. No matter where I am, I'm standing in your love. On the mountains, I will bow my life to the one who has set me free. In the valley, I will lift my eyes to the one who sees me there. When I'm standing on the mountain off, I didn't get there on my own. When I'm walking through to the valley's end, I know I'm not alone. You're God of the hills and the valleys, the hills and the valleys, and I am not alone. I've watched my dreams get broken. In you I hope again. No matter what I know, I know I'm safe inside your hands. You're the God of the hills and the valleys. I know some of you are going through a tough season. You feel, yeah, that's me. I'm in that valley. I know some of you aren't. And I praise God for that. But I think many of us are. And it's not because God has taken his blessing or concern away from you. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. And that's difficult to hear sometimes. God is not absent. He has plans to make us better. In the valley, we cry out to God. In the valley, we say, God, help me, please. On the mountaintop, we often say, yes, look at what God has done. Mountains and valleys are kind of a different connotations. Yeah, yeah. But for me, you say mountain, I think, on the mountaintop, I'm going to go, look at how good he is. But down in the valley, I'm going to cry out, please help me get through this. One of the things I, I was most struck by when Matt ran a course on, um, on prayer, and I know Brian and Marion have said this too, and obviously, again, it's the Nell show, but there you go. Um, <laughs> But because but of the nations, praying for the nations, to say, you know, praying for the nations isn't always like, get them out of this, God. You know, just take them all out. You know, take everyone out of Syria, just lift them up and plonk them somewhere else. Or, but actually, often it's praying with them and saying, not get me out, just get me through. Yeah. Don't, don't get me out, get me through. Because I believe on the other side, there is your glory and your grace. And through it, there is your grace and your glory. Don't get me out, get me through. So if you're in the valley, I want to encourage you when the prayer team are waiting afterwards to pray with you, um, it'd be good to go and get some prayer. Because sometimes, and, and this is a reality I think we all face, can't even get the words out. Can't, I, I, I can't even really express it. I just know that I need God to sustain me through this period of life. I've had enough conversations over the last few weeks of people saying, just so weird. Couldn't even explain it. Just feel just... Uh. And sometimes, you know, you're praying, well, well, God, I pray now, God, stop that. And in some ways, yes, please, God, please bring that to an end. 
but please sustain this person through this because we trust in you. You've not said, ah, go on then, do your own thing, you mess up. There's a whole other aspect of that. God is, if you're pursuing him and you're desiring him and you're wanting him, he's not walked off and said, well, I'll come around to you later. Let me pray briefly, but I'm always worried if I pray, you think, oh, that's the prayer bit done. And I think there is prayer needs in this room and there's a great prayer team that would love to pray with you. And if you want to come and chat to me, I'll be happy to pray with you too. But let me pray, let me pray. God, you're a God of the hills and the valleys. You're a God who is with us, Father, through times of great jubilee when we can say, I can tell you right now of all the good things he has done. But I thank you for Exodus and what you're trying to tell us here is that, that going through times of trial is not because you're absent. It's because you use the things of this world for your purposes. Exodus is going to prove that through this plan of, of Pharaoh to, to, to destroy. He actually does completely opposite because it ends up with Moses and you, you bring the nation out through that, Father. Your, your way of using our circumstances, our work situations that might be difficult, our, our school situations, our family situations that may prove difficult. The way you can use those is, is, is stunning at times when you think through that. As Sue uh, confessed last week about a difficult family situation, yet in that there was a, a rediscovering of what it means to show grace. Father, you are, your wisdom is far beyond our understanding. Your knowledge goes way beyond what we can comprehend. You are God and we are not. And we trust you. And I say that because I think it's important we do. We say that we do trust you, Father. I do trust you. Even at times I, I don't know what you're doing I trust you because you've made promises over me. You've made promises over us. You've made promises over the church that we will become the bride of Christ one day. But we're living in the middle of that, Father. There's times of difficulty. I just pray that, that don't, don't get us out if it's not the time to come out, Father God, but get us through it. That we might be stronger, that you might strengthen our resolve, that you might make us a resilient people so that when we come up with, with even bigger trials, we think, that was training for this. That got me to here. Now I can, I can minister, I can counsel others, I can support and strengthen through because I have experienced times of difficulty. It's not like my life has been peachy and, and actually I can empathize and understand and pray with you. Please, God, would you ultimately get them out? But what, while that's about to happen, will you get them through? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.